Chapter Dark Assassins Part 2 Eagle is focusing on you too and I don't know why. I only know that it may have something to do with my father's old journals he left me. It was three in the morning as the exhausted and nervous Captain Trent played the audio player a third time. He handed it back to his guests, who sat patiently in front of him in his office. Minutes ago, he had awoken from a sound sleep in his quarters to find two men standing on either side of his bed. They were dressed completely in black and even wore dark sunglasses. From behind the lenses, Trent could swear he saw a tinge of red, which could only be their pupils. He was told to get dressed and to meet them in his office immediately. As Trent struggled to get his clothes on in the dark, he realized the men were no longer there. He didn't hear or see them leave his room. Was it a dream? He shook his head, quickly put his clothes on, and was later introduced to the recording. Captain Trent rubbed his head, finding it difficult to think so early in the morning. Um, what do you want me to do with this? The two men looked at each other. The first one answered the question. Tell us about Lisa Duquesne. All right, said Trent, clearing his throat. She's a bit shy and seems to keep to herself. The two assigned to her said she's a believer and may pose a problem. She doesn't seem to be aware that Catherine and Cal are keeping an eye on them, but the first man held up his hand. Mr. Trent, tell us about. Captain Trent, Trent interrupted. The man shook his head. No, since we come aboard this ship, it no longer belongs to you. Now, tell us plain and simple. Is Lisa Duquesne aware of the forces around her? Trent closed his eyes, trying to think. Remembering the waiter's words, he nodded. I think she may have some insight, but I don't think she's aware of Catherine, Cal, and me. The second man leaned closer to Trent, close enough for Trent to see the red glow behind the sunglasses. With a deep, unnatural voice, he said, tell us about Sean Duquesne. Trent, now understanding the point of their questions, shook his head. I don't think Sean Duquesne is in the same category as his wife. He seems totally oblivious to the attack on his life the other day. He even thinks that Cal saved him from the oncoming car. No, I'm pretty sure he's completely unaware. But he survived, said the second man. Yes, yes, he did, Trent responded. The second man leaned back into the chair. Then it's his wife who protects him even when she's not near. Well, she was in a store close by and she was not close enough to have him in her sights, correct? Asked the same man. Right, said Trent. The two men stood up. The first addressed Trent again. It is clear what must be done. We no longer need your services. Be sure to not get in our way. Carry on as if nothing has happened and make sure you respond to anything as any captain would. The men turned to walk to the door. Wait, Trent called after them. What are you going to do? The men stopped. The second one with the unnerving voice turned around. Clean up a couple of loose ends. The sheer evil in his voice caught Trent off guard. These weren't ordinary assassins. These men were deep in the organization. Not many have seen men of this caliber, and even less have been in their presence. They were only brought out on extremely important cases. Trent had no idea this was so important. He watched the two men leave his office and realized that he didn't get their names. Shaking his head, he realized that they wouldn't answer that question. The only thing he knew for sure was his boat was lost. Some of the crew and the passengers will probably be dead along with the Duquesnes. These two were surely dark assassins.
Jose Calderon was a lucky man. He had a rough life growing up but managed to stay away from the gangs and drugs that destroyed the others he grew up with. His job as security officer with the cruise line was great. He had a chance to meet interesting people while traveling outside the boundaries of his berth. It was his turn for early morning duty, and his responsibility was to check all of the rooms on the lower level. The other guards hated this shift, but he enjoyed it. Nothing ever happened, giving him time to do other things he normally couldn't do during the day. After his rounds, he would sit in the security room and appear to be checking out the monitors while studying one of his computer textbooks. Just one more year, and he would have saved up enough money to go to trade school to learn how to be a computer repair technician. After graduation, he would get a job, save his money, then open up a store of his own. It was his dream, and so far his plans were working out just fine. Lower level. Jose checked each door along the corridor. Most of the rooms were service rooms of various types, such as telephone and computer control rooms, janitorial storage rooms, and so on. After doing this for countless days, each room turned into only a number. A number that was counted off before he would return to the security office. What was that? Jose thought, hearing something. Man, not another rat. Jose heard the scurrying sound just down the corridor where he had to check the rest of the doors. Now he had to leave a note with the janitorial manager. Jose took a deep breath as Tupita returned. Taking out his flashlight, he bumped it against the wall to warn the rat of his approach. Continuing to check each door, he nervously kept a watch out for something scurrying on the floor. This distraction kept Jose from seeing the quick movements taking place above him. The next door he tried was the laundry room. It was unlocked. He cursed under his breath that someone didn't lock the door when closing up. Now, he had to check it out. With his flashlight in front of him, he reached for the light switch and flicked it on. Nothing happened. The room remained dark. He turned the flashlight on and slowly scanned the room. Nothing was in it. He heard the scurrying again, this time in the room. It had to be the rat, but how did it get in here from the corridor, unless... Unless there was more than one. Man, this ship's going downhill, he said. Jose walked in the room, obligated to make sure that all was secure. He hoped the rat would leave him alone. He slowly walked past the sacks of dirty laundry, washers and dryers, and dry cleaning units. Everything was in order. He was about to leave and lock up when he smelled something weird. He was so intent on running into the rat that he totally ignored the smell before. Jose turned around, flashing the light at the multiple units. On pure intuition, he felt each dryer unit. When he got to the last one, it was hot as if it was recently stopped. Jose shook his head figuring that someone must have been here late trying to finish something, left the dryer on, and forgot to lock the door. He opened the door to the dryer and found a large box. What the? Jose felt a gust of wind and a sharp snap. He fell hard to the floor, his neck limp to one side. He couldn't believe his eyes as he saw a dark figure hovering above him. The eyes were completely red, filled with pure evil. The man hovered so close to Jose that he could smell the stench of his breath. Jose was dying and knew it. He was most likely hallucinating, for what he heard next wasn't human. The dark assassin with the evil voice shook his head and said, In the wrong place at the wrong time. The dark assassin rammed his fist through Jose's ribcage and removed his beating heart. Lisa lay in bed with Sean snoring away at her side. 
Her eyes were wide open, since there was no way she could go to sleep after what was just revealed to her. However, there was much she didn't understand. It was what she couldn't grasp that kept her mind active during these early hours. Splash. What was that? Thought Lisa. She turned to Sean to see if the sound had woken him. He was still snoring. Probably a big fish or dolphin, she concluded. It wasn't uncommon for dolphins to follow large boats. As a matter of fact, it would have been great to take a couple of pictures, if only it were daytime. Splash. Splash. They must be very close, thought Lisa. It sounds as if they're just below our room. Sean continued his snoring, undaunted by the loud commotion taking place just below them. Splash. This time the sound was a little farther away, and as Lisa listened carefully, she heard another one even farther than the last. The boat must be outdistancing them, she concluded. She focused again on the events during their cruise and wasn't encouraged at what she remembered. First, there was Sean's inability to understand her deeper relationship with God. Then Catherine and Cal seemed to have attached themselves to them, affecting the quality time she wished she had alone with Sean. Third, the car accident. Fourth, Anne Marie's revelation of an evil force trying to come against them. Fifth, the dream she just had, giving her peace and the power to dispel evil. And sixth, the faces of those plotting evil against her and Sean. There was indeed some kind of battle line being drawn, and the forces of evil and good were ready for combat. But one of the biggest things still bothering her was that she didn't know how she fit into all of this. No answers came to Lisa as she lay there in silence for what seemed to be a long time before. Ka, boom. The boat shook violently as if it were being attacked. Frightened, Lisa jumped out of the bed. Sean fell on the floor with a loud thud as the ship rocked heavily to one side, then back. Lisa lost her footing and fell down hard, hitting her head against the wall. Everything went quickly black. Anne-Marie prayed that her deception of heading south toward New York City threw whomever was following her off track. She wasn't really good at this, but so far God had blessed her actions. As she drove in silence on the New York Thruway, Route 87 North, she was amazed she had been able to almost stay awake the entire night and sleep during the day. To avoid people and keep from being recognized, she determined that travel during the night provided a perfect blanket of obscurity. But it did put a lot of stress on her to try to get things done during the night. Sometimes it wasn't a problem to find stores open early in the morning, but normally it felt like a deserted planet with every light turned out and storefront gated. It was four in the morning as Anne-Marie started to think about finding a place to spend the day. She forced herself to keep an eye out for a local motel sign. Money wasn't a problem since Sean left her a good amount, plus his ATM card and password. She had taken out as much money as she could while heading down to New York City, then had cut up the card and discarded it. What money she had, had to do. $6,000 should be enough for now. She smiled as she envisioned Sean's face when he found out how much she took, but the smile didn't last long as she thought of the kids. It was very difficult to leave them with the pastor of Lisa's church, Pastor Matthew Bunn. In confidence, she had explained everything to him and had waited, praying silently within, hoping that he'd understand. To her surprise, he had been very receptive. He told Anne-Marie about the powerful dream he had the previous night that showed him how he was going to play a powerful role in a fight between good and evil. God showed him that too many lies had been allowed to deceive his children and that it was time to open their eyes. 
In his dream, Pastor Bun saw Anne-Marie, exactly the way she looked now. Seven mighty angels surrounded her, protecting her, and guiding her toward some unknown book. As she walked toward the book, demons appeared and attacked the angels to no avail. Wave upon wave of demons continued to buffet the angels, but their defenses never broke. As Anne-Marie reached for the book, Pastor Bun said the dream then focused on his protection of the children with his prayers. Two mighty angels always stood close to the children. It all made perfect sense when he saw her, heard from her what transpired, and where she was going. With his blessings, she set out on the long track to recover the journals. Anne-Marie shivered. Something was wrong. Looking at her watch, she saw it was 4.30 in the morning. All of a sudden, a vision flashed in her mind, showing Lisa and Sean in great distress. She slammed on the brakes and quickly turned the car onto the shoulder, almost losing control. They seemed so far away as she started praying for them. She knew God was with them, and both Lisa and her prayers were protecting Sean, but that'll only go so far. He's a man with a free will to either reject or accept Jesus as his savior. If he ever turned from the Lord, she shuddered as she tried not to consider the consequences. She prayed for Lisa and Sean's deliverance from whatever was assailing them. She also prayed that God would continue to protect her as she traveled to Montreal. Mommy, no, screamed Nicole out loud, still asleep. Daddy, daddy no. Brad, sleeping in a bed next to his sister woke up disoriented. He woke up for a reason and didn't know why. He was about to close his eyes again when he heard his sister's screams for her mother and father. Fully awake, Brad got out of his bed and shook his sister. She didn't wake up. Come on, Nick, you're having a bad dream. Shut up, will ya? He whispered loudly to her. He shook her again, this time seeing the sweat on her face. She had it bad, he thought. Nicole screamed again for her parents. Brad had enough. He remembered how actors on television would snap someone out of a frenzied state. Without thinking twice, he slapped his sister hard on her face. Nicole's eyes opened immediately. She looked at Brad, then at Brad's hand, and pushed him hard to the floor. Why'd you hit me? Cause you're freaking me out, that's why. He shouted back, upset from being pushed. They both heard Pastor Bun's voice outside their bedroom door. Is everything all right in there? He asked, not entering trying to respect their privacy. Nicole answered, yeah, we're sorry for getting too loud. We're going back to bed now. All right, get some sleep. Okay, they both said in unison. When the sound of Pastor Bun's footsteps disappeared, Nicole looked down at her brother. Why did you hit me stupid? She whispered. Brad waved his hand at her and got into his bed. Brad, why? So you can push me down again, forget it. Have your stupid nightmares. I don't care. He whispered back with an attitude. Oh, she said, and nothing else. After a while, Brad asked, you remember what it was? Yeah. About mommy and dad, he asked. Yeah, how do you know? Brad tilted his head. Duh. Like you were screaming their names at the top of your lungs. Nicole wiped something away from her eyes. Brad squinted and realized she was crying. He got out of bed and sat next to his sister. You want to talk about it? I'm scared, Brad. I'm scared that mommy and daddy are dead. What? I saw them drown as their boat sank. I saw them die. That's stupid. They're having a good time. Grandmother had an emergency with her business and will be gone for a few days. 
work here with Pastor and his wife. Two old people who forgot how hard it is having kids in the house, said Brad, trying his best to downplay the dream. And, asked Nicole. And what? It's a dream, Nick. Get over it. But it looks so real. It was as if I was right there. Brad thought for a while. Look, I'm sorry you had a bad dream that scared you. But to make you feel better, maybe we can have Pastor call Mom and Dad later. All right. Yeah, I guess so. Nicole wiped away the tears and regained her composure. All of a sudden, she felt embarrassed having her little brother see her this way. Like, why don't you get in your own bed so I can get some sleep? What? Brad responded, being caught off guard. Get off my bed. Do you understand that? Duh, like I shed one tear and you get all mushy. Brad got off Nicole's bed. You know, sometimes you can have a civil syndrome. You know, a split personality, he said as he made his way to his bed. Yeah, right. Like, don't hurt your brain. Like, that was really stupid. Good night, Brad. She wouldn't admit it, but she was glad Brad was in the same room with her. Good night, Sybil. What was that? shouted Sean. Did we hit something? Sean was still on the floor shouting out loud to no one. Both the shock of the explosion and the movement of the ship disoriented him. When he finally regained his wits, he thought about Lisa. Lisa, where are you? He said, standing up. Immediately, he saw her slumped unconscious against the wall. Lisa. He leaped over the bed and gently grabbed his wife. He looked at her carefully, desperately trying to figure out where she was hurt. She was breathing easily, but the apparent welk on her head bothered him. Oh, Lisa, he said softly. Sean gently placed his wife back on the floor and then quickly went for the telephone. He had to get her some medical attention. When he picked up the phone, he didn't hear a dial tone. To no avail, he played with the phone's on and off switch, hoping it would connect. Disgusted, he threw the phone to the floor and went to turn on the lights in the room. They didn't work either. Nothing's working around here, he muttered to himself. Hours after his meeting with the two dark assassins, Captain Trent could think of nothing else. The pure evil emanating from the two was definitely something he didn't expect. He even began to doubt whether what he was doing was right. Did he make a mistake by associating himself with this group? Sure, they kept him living a lifestyle some would drool over, but at what cost? Kaboom! The boat shook violently as if it was being attacked. Captain Trent jumped out of his desk chair, lost his balance, and fell awkwardly on the floor. My ship, he thought. They're going to destroy my ship and everyone aboard. Maybe even me. The lights to his office immediately went out, and the boat lurched heavily to one side, tossing Trent along with various items from his desk. When the ship moved back, every loose item, including the captain himself, shifted to the other side of the office. As the ship settled, Captain Trent jumped up and grabbed his phone. Austin. Austin. He screamed for the officer scheduled to be in charge. Austin, why? Trent looked at the phone. The line was dead. The Beckmans slept peacefully in their bed for what was their last time. Kaboom. The boat shook violently and lurched heavily to one side, dumping the Beckmans on top of each other. When it moved in the opposite direction, they slammed hard into the side of the bed. Owl, shouted Catherine. Get off me, I can barely breathe. 
Cal tried to move away from Catherine, but couldn't until the ship balanced itself. Are you okay? He asked. Catherine breathed heavily as her chest finally had the needed space to receive air. After a short while, she answered. What kind of stupid question was that, you jerk? We just fell off the bed, the ship rocked us into the bed, and I couldn't breathe because... Aw, shut up. Forget it. Cal interrupted. He was definitely glad he wasn't really married to her. That would truly be hell on earth. Cal stood up and grabbed the phone. It was dead as he expected. He then checked the light switch. It too wouldn't work. What are you doing? shouted Catherine. Cal turned to Catherine, who was now sitting on the floor. I think the assassins just made their wake-up call. I think we'd better get off the boat now, he said. What? Catherine responded. You gotta be kidding. In the dark, in the middle of nowhere, and in the Atlantic. No way. I mean, what about the Duquesnes? Cal walked close enough to where Catherine could see his face again in the dark. It's because of the Duquesnes that this ship and many others aboard are going to die. They want them and I suggest we don't get in their way, or they wouldn't hesitate to add us to the casualty list. Cal paused, allowing his words to sink in. Well, Catherine grabbed his arm. Let's get out of here. Something's gone wrong here. Sean mumbled to himself. I got to get Lisa to a doctor. Sean was about to go back to Lisa and pick her up when he remembered his friend, Cal Beckman. Sean slapped his forehead and rushed to the door. When he opened the door, it was completely black. Even the emergency lights weren't working. He heard voices and screams in the dark, but couldn't see anyone. Everyone was panicking and making the situation worse by not calming down and working together. Sean even heard someone scream at another passenger for knocking him down and stepping on his chest. He clung close to the wall, trying to remember how long it was to the Beckmans. When he finally reached their door, he banged his fists on it as loud as he could. Cal, open up, I need your help. No answer. Sean tried to listen carefully for any movement in their room, but the screaming in the hall prevented him from hearing correctly. He tried the door, it was locked. He banged on the door again. This time it flew open and Sean was pulled inside. He fell hard to the floor and felt the weight of someone's foot on his neck. Who are you? What do you want? Cal forcibly demanded. Sean couldn't talk with the pressure on his neck. A little more force and he knew his neck could easily be snapped. Whoever it is can't talk with your foot on his neck like that. Ugh, you're so stupid, shouted Catherine. Cal released the pressure slightly. Sean. It's me, Sean. Need help. Oh no, I don't want him in, Catherine mumbled before being interrupted. Sean, said Cal releasing his foot. Why didn't you say so in the first place, man? Sean sat up, rubbing the back of his neck. Lisa bumped her head bad, she needs help. Can you help me get her to the doctor's office? Cal looked at Catherine. Catherine grimaced slightly. She's in your room, asked Cal. Yeah, she's unconscious. Cal took a deep breath. Okay, Kath get the flashlight and what flashlight? We don't. Catherine, listen to me carefully, okay? Sean needs our help. Hit the flashlight we just got from the hall and give it to me. Then we'll all get Lisa, Cal said slowly. Oh, right, she said. Sean heard Catherine moving around in the dark as he felt Cal's hand on his shoulder. Sorry I put you down like that man. I didn't know who was banging on the door. 
We were getting nervous, you know. It's all right, said Sean. Let's just get Lisa. Here, Cal, said Catherine. Thanks. Now, let's get out of here, said Cal, rushed. Clunk. The fire extinguisher was swung with great force against Sean's head, immediately knocking him unconscious to the floor. Lock the door, said Cal to Catherine. I'll lock the one where Lisa is. Several minutes later, Captain Trent burst through the bridge door, hollering at the top of his lungs. The entire bridge was dark, nothing was working, which shouldn't have happened since the backup generators should have kicked in, unless it was also sabotaged. Austin, where are you? shouted Trent into the dark room. Over here, sir. Austin turned the flashlight away from the wires he was checking and onto his face so the captain could see him better. I'm trying to figure out why our panels are out, but the engine's still running. There must be a short somewhere. Trent turned beat red, rushed to Austin, nearly tripped over some unseen objects, and grabbed him viciously by his arm. There's only one short, you idiot, and it's in your head. We have no backup power. That means the generators are offline. We can't control the engines because the panels are out, and the engines must be accessing the backup diesel fuel. So get some people down there right now and correct the problem. I'm gonna get some people to find out what we hit. Now go. Give me that flashlight. Yes, sir, Austin said, running away frightened. He had never seen the captain so angry. Captain Trent used the flashlight to find a radio. He had to contact the Coast Guard and tell them of their situation. After fiddling with the dials and controls, he realized that this, too, wasn't working. Isn't anything working on this ship? He shouted in frustration. He hit the radio with his fist, sending a sharp pain through his wrist. Grabbing his hand, he fell to the floor on his knees, whimpering in pain. After a while, one of his subordinates ran onto the bridge looking for the captain. He saw the flashlight and the captain on the floor near it. Captain. The subordinate rushed over to Trent. Are you all right? Don't touch me. I think my hand's busted. The subordinate paused. Austin told me to tell you what we found out about the lower level of the ship. He said, then waiting for Trent to respond. Well, go ahead. The subordinate continued. Well, there was an explosion somewhere down there and the ship is taking on water, but the good news is that we're not going to sink. Trent nodded. And the bad news, he thought to himself. The bad news, the attendant said after a slight pause, is that there's a fire spreading on the ship and the sprinkler system isn't working. Nothing's working. The explosion took out all the power and backup generators. The ship is going to burn unless we get help out here soon. Captain Trent looked at his busted fist. The radio is offline, he mumbled. Get everyone to the lifeboats. We'll set the distress beacon from there. Sir, I thought you knew. Now, what? screamed Trent. The boats, sir. All of the lifeboats have been released. We're stranded. Where's the lifeboats? shouted Catherine. I don't see any lifeboats. Where are they? Cal glanced around the deck. Not a lifeboat was to be seen. Other people were running around looking for some kind of help, not noticing the Beckman's predicament. Only a few paranoid passengers wondered the same question. Get out of the way. A tall, heavyset man, wearing a life jacket, pushed Cal to the floor. The man carefully climbed over the railing and jumped off the ship. Cal looked at Catherine, scrambled down the deck a few feet, then returned with two life jackets. Here, 
put it on. Shaking her hands, she shouted, No way. No way are you going to get me to jump off this ship. Fine. Cal put on the life jacket and pointed to a red light built into it. It's a distress beacon and a flashing light. They'll find us, and the sun is rising. No, I'll take my chances here, she said distressed. Cal nodded as he walked to the railing. Did you happen to look at the tail end of the ship? That dark cloud isn't someone's burnt breakfast, the ship's burning. It may be even sinking from what we know. So here's your choice, burn or drown. Whichever one comes first or led with the hope of being saved. Catherine looked at the smoke. Heavy, thick smoke slowly rose into the night sky with an ominous life of its own. She reasoned that with the rising of the sun the ship's demise would become evident to everyone, creating a mass panic for life jackets. She shook as she grabbed the life jacket. Don't leave me, I don't want to be alone. The two climbed over the railing. Cal paused, shocked at what he saw, and then pointed to a large floating structure behind the ship. Catherine hesitated, then nodded. Hoping for the best, the two jumped into the cold Atlantic Ocean. No boats, no boats. Captain Trent mumbled to himself. No Coast Guard, no, wait a minute. What? said the subordinate. Phone, a satellite phone. Someone must have one on board. Go get one and call the Coast Guard. Tell them about our situation. Tell them we need immediate fire aid and retrieval. Go, you have to find one. The subordinate turned and ran out of the bridge, hoping to find a phone. Not a bad idea, said a voice out of the dark. Trent turned toward the person speaking, but couldn't see him due to the lack of light in the bridge. Technology has made our jobs too difficult over these past years. Who's that? asked Trent, rising to his feet. Who's there? But you see, Mr. Trent, even if you find a phone and contact the Coast Guard, by the time they get here they'll only be the burning remains of passengers who were unable to leave the ship and a burning ship beyond help. You, you did this, asked Trent, realizing whom he was talking to. You didn't have to destroy the whole ship. You only had to kill the Duquesnes. You, don't, tell us how to do our job. Upon further investigation, the authorities will consider this a terrorist act and then spend their energies for the next few years trying to pin this on some group. When none comes up, they'll either find a scapegoat or file it away as unresolved. You didn't have to do this, he mumbled. You didn't have to do this. The dark assassin came forward from a dark corner on the bridge and looked at the captain. You don't understand. This is a war, and a war must always have casualties. Neutral, enemy or compatriot. Sacrifices are always made. But it's my boat, the captain whimpered. The dark assassin sighed. If you survive, you'll be taken care of as always. Your temporal desires will be satisfied. Just remember to keep your mouth shut. You have the consequences for talking. The captain nodded. Good. Survive and you'll be given another sleeper assignment. That's all for now. We have to check on a few things before we leave. The dark assassin turned to walk out the door when the subordinate, who had just left, ran into him shouting something about Austin getting a phone. The dark assassin grabbed the man by the top of his head and twisted it 360 degrees. The man fell limp to the floor dead. The assassin left the bridge, not thinking twice about the life he had just extinguished.